radical secular podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Visit theradicalsecular.com for our full library of episodes and articles at the Radical Secular blog. Sign up for free access to exclusive content and giveaways. Email us with your comments and suggestions, and follow us on social media. Welcome to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Sean Prophet. I'm Christoph Defoe. And I'm Joe Gipinti. Today, we're going to talk about the role of violence in American history and modern America. Die by the Sword is the title of our episode. It reflects a quote from the book of Matthew. Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. It's not an explicitly religious sentiment. It's more like common sense wisdom. The Bible has a lot of that. <laughs> uh, it, it, and it also has a lot of junk. <laughs> but if you carry or brandish a deadly weapon, it gives other people a pretext to use a weapon against you first, which is the classic Hobbesian trap. And Die by the Sword is also a Slayer song for all you metal fans out there. <laughs> so we'll start our conversation today about American violence with the momentous week for police accountability with that electrifying triple guilty verdict in Minneapolis for Derek Chauvin. We'll be discussing the fallout from his conviction on murder charges, and we'll also be talking about the ongoing police use of deadly force against suspects. We'll connect that to America's epidemic of civilian gun violence. The violence on our streets is also connected in ways we don't often consider to the global arms trade. The United States is the world's leading arms merchant, and we're going to discuss the inseparable link between war, policing, violence, and capitalism, and specifically how the small arms industry in our own nation has brought the war home to our communities. Before we get into that conversation, I want to remind you that if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out theradicalsecular.com, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And please check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. All right, let's talk about our t-shirts. Christoph, what are you wearing today? Yes. So today I'm rocking my a 1984 t-shirt. And so for those of you who can't see it, it says 84. It's not like a baseball t-shirt, right? It says the name and with the letters across the back, the number is 84 and the name is Orwell. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm, and I'm wearing that today because the defense in the Chauvin trial was trying to convince us to not see what we plainly saw on the video, right? That right. was their entire defense. And this is something that police forces and authoritarians of all stripes do, right? Is that they tell you that your eyes and your ears and your senses are failing you. It's gaslighting, right? And, and mm -hmm. I couldn't, and as I was reading and dealing with the coverage of the Chauvin verdict, that kept ringing in my ears. And I'm just so glad to be part of that moment and, of course, for the outcome. So that's my teacher today, folks. Fantastic. And Joe, what, what have you got? Well, this is a, just a basic universal reminder of my T-shirt. It's really about understanding that we are one, one little rock here and floating in space and mm -hmm. the world is integrating, it's coming together, and we are a richly diverse world. And we need to figure out how to make that work, and which means universal rights. It means respecting other people's rights and their dignity. And I think that is fundamentally what a lot of our show, virtually every single show that we do is about that, right? Mm -hmm. So, And certainly so, this one is too. And your shirt says unity and diversity, and it has kind of a reverse silhouette of black and white, and it's got stars, black and white stars, white on black stars, et cetera. It's a right. it's really cool image. Absolutely. Love Very it. cool. All right. Well, how about I, you, Sean? Yeah, today I am wearing, uh, this is a 
shirt with the Star Trek Federation logo. And the logo is made up of all of the Star Trek ships. Okay? Oh, yeah. Yes. And Love for it. me, it's I know it's a little bit like yours that you had on uh, a week or two ago, Joe. But this is for me today. The reason I wore this is because it symbolizes uh, the Federation's policy of violence as a last resort. And mm -hmm. this is what a lot of people get wrong about militarism a lot of times, the kind of false dichotomy between pacifism and militarism. The point is you have to have the ability to use force, but it also has to be a last resort if, if you're a civilized nation or world or, or federation or whatever. That has to be the policy is that everything else is tried before you resort to violence. And unfortunately, we are a long ways from that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Long way. Yeah. Backtracking. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. Backtracking is right. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, let's get into the news. The top story this week is, of course, the long awaited verdict in the Derek Chauvin murder trial. I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about this verdict. In fact, when it was announced on Tuesday, I was just gripped with emotion over the whole thing. And after everything we've been through this past year, I wasn't ready for how I felt. This was, it was definitely the most emotional that I've been like in, in like the last year. And it was just waves of relief mixed with kind of grief and anger over having had to go through this. So I just, I know that I wasn't the only one. So I want to start out by first asking you, Christoph, to describe your experience of this moment on both a personal level and how you feel this is being received by the African-American community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what a powerful moment. I, I think like you, I had a similar, I it felt like realizing that Trump was not going to be elected again, that he had, he had lost the election, right? Like that level of elation. And, and I wasn't like jumping up and down happy. It was like relief, but definitely very emotional. As I, I always say on the show, I frequently say on the show that I, I feel unable to speak competently for the African-American community, not only because I'm one person, but because my experience is so different than a typical African-American in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. That said, I am Black and I am a Black man in America. And the feeling of justice, I'm in the middle of writing a blog post about this sort of experience, right, that I'll put out next week. But the, the thrust of it is one of the things I say there is that like, is this sense of vindication, is this what white people feel like all the time, right? This feeling of like, oh, wow, the system works. The system kind of works, right? Look at this. I mean, and we're going to talk about this more as we go yeah. on, but I, I am really, I was like you, Sean, really fucking happy, like really happy. And then immediately I felt like that happiness was sort of popped by some mm -hmm. folks online. And we're gonna talk about mm -hmm. that specifically in a few minutes, but I wanna say that this is such an important moment. And you know what, and then I'll, I'll shut up after this. And that is, I think that folks sometimes who haven't been paying attention to this stuff, who haven't been living this stuff, um, who haven't been in the trenches with these issues with systemic racism, who just suddenly realized last summer that systemic racism was a thing, mm -hmm. like this may seem like not a big deal. But if you've been dealing with this, living this for 40 years, like real accountability, if you were paying attention in 92 with Rodney King, if you were paying attention with years after years of cops getting away with this, this was not a moment to say, oh my God, the system's so, so bad. No, this is a moment to say, holy shit, a breakthrough, right. a fucking breakthrough. Anyway, we'll talk yeah. more about it, but, uh, but that, that's my piece for now. Well, thanks for that. And I just want to, to say real briefly that what's happening that I see uh, is it's this 
catalyzing with all these kind of large events and small events of there's just constant progress backlash, progress backlash. And it goes right. through families. It goes through workplaces. It goes through online conversation. It's just this, everything ripples back and forth, back and forth. And so we just hope that the net result of that is a forward motion. And <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, okay. Right. How about you, Joe? I noticed that you wrote an article about the verdict uh, on the Radical mm -hmm. Secular blog. Yeah. It's called The Politics of Reflection. Do you want to talk about that article and your feelings? Well, yeah. I mean, like you guys, you know, I emotionally, this was a very challenging, very difficult moment. I think in a lot of ways, I had that same feeling of elation and relief, but also something nagging and mm -hmm. something. And, and and so I wrote a piece about called um, The Politics of Reflection of reflection. And what I was thinking about there is that this is an opportunity for us to understand each of our, our own place in society and our responsibilities therein, right? What does it mean to be in society and deal with these kinds of tragedies, these kinds of injustices? And, you know, in the piece I talk about, I was an immigrant kid. I was bullied for who I was pretty severely, actually. Mm -hmm. And so I have a sense of what it means to, to be targeted because of your identity. But then as I grew in, in this country, I was in the white club, so <laughs> I lost that. That didn't really happen for me as an adult. And it's easy to forget, but for people of color, for African-Americans, it's a living reality. It's an everyday reality. And I want to be able to have this honest conversation about that with all of us, right? White privilege, you know, people struggle with this so much. You know, Sean, you've talked about this a lot. Mm -hmm. Don't want to hear it. it. It doesn't get people, white people get defensive and there's a lot of denial around it. As you said, everyone suffers. Everyone has a hard time in life, but this is a particular mm -hmm. way that people suffer and are abused and oppressed. And, and it falls on a particular group of people. And we have to accept that. We have to be honest about that. that it is about racism. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I talked about in the, in, the, in the piece was the whole issue of punching down. And when cops have the, the legitimacy of violence and that power that comes with it, and then they abuse that power in such a horrific way, that's about as worse of a punching down uh, narrative episode that you can get. I mean, don't you think? Yeah. And the other thing I talked about, people... A lot of, especially a lot of white people don't want to be confrontational. In fact, the right always talks about how the left is confrontational, how evil that is <laughs> and so forth as, as a distraction, right? Yeah. And honestly, confrontation has a role to play here. We all know this. Mm -hmm. It has a role because it has agency. It works, but also because it's an internal act of liberation for mm -hmm. people. When you're oppressed over and over again, when you're beaten down internally inside, there has to be a way for you to free yourself from that fear, right? And I think that confrontation is a way to do that, right? And this does ne not necessarily mean, have to mean, like you said, Sean, in a civilized society, violence is the last resort. There's yeah. a lot of ways to confront, right? But even There's when you a can, lot of ways. when you talk about confrontation, okay, the more privilege you have, the less incentive there is to confront anything, right? Because you're benefiting from the status quo. So it's like, there is definitely a sliding scale, right? And you find people who are into like, let's coexist, let's be peaceful. There's a lot of right. privilege talking there. There's a lot of privilege there. You know what? And that's important too. And just to piggyback on what you're saying, Sean, is that same privilege 
also allows, empowers people to confront, right? Mm -hmm. And this is something that I talk about all the time about why allies are so fucking critical, right? Mm -hmm. Because as a white man or a white woman standing in the street gets more protection around them than a black man just by existing, it is hard to put that privilege on the line. I do think that it is, but I also think that there is, there's a real power to confront built into that privilege. And we saw yes. that with George Floyd. I mean, that is why we are sitting here having this conversation is because of those protests last summer. And there were mostly white people out there, mostly white people. That's rare. It is. And let's discuss the root of why those people were out there and mm-hmm. you know, ongoing issues of police violence. You know, After this initial euphoria about the verdict wore off, there seemed to be a sort of reversion to this feeling of more needs to be done. And mm-hmm. Of course, President Biden, former President Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and others weighed in very strongly about that. And I was glad that they did. But I want to get your take because I kind of feel in another way, just that sense of emotional release, okay, that I had and that a lot of people had. Can we just take a minute to enjoy this victory? I, I know that the shootings haven't stopped. I mean, there was another young black woman killed in Ohio within minutes of the reading of this guilty verdict. And par for the course. I know that the right wing has been going crazy over this. I've seen the racists out in force everywhere, making their bad arguments, dunking on BLM. Fucker Tarlson was in his fine white nationalist form the night of the verdict during his show on April 20th. He let out this just maniacal laugh when his guest, Ed Gavin, a former New York City law enforcement official, called Chauvin's actions pure savagery and said that the verdict was just. Gavin then suggested the cops should be more careful in their use of force in the future. And Tucker gave this sort of laugh shriek and abruptly cut the feed and terminated the interview saying, nope, done. And all those shenanigans are, they're a given. Okay. But this is a war for justice in America. We don't expect the other side to concede and we don't expect everything to be solved with one verdict. And of course they never concede. They always double down, but we had a huge victory and we all know how awful it would have been. Can you imagine if it had gone the other way, we would have been gripped in a spasm of insanity right now in this country. And so, you know, can't we ever just take a beat and absorb the good news? Am I off the base on this? I mean, I'm with you. I am absolutely with you. This, I I just got done saying I can't speak for the African-American community. I don't think I can, but I will say this is that black people were definitely elated, right? Like definitely like, holy shit, this is a huge deal. Like this is not, and here's the thing. And from my perspective, and I love my activist friends. I love folks out there that really know that this isn't really full justice, right? This is justice perhaps for George Floyd's family, right? Perhaps this is relief for George Floyd's family and for all of us in a lot of ways, but Still, we are, like you say, Sean, in a war um, and a war of ideas. And what's also true is that many, many before we win this war, if we win this war, many, many more people will die. And I Mm -hmm. mean die. Black people will be shot by police. They're being shot by police as we speak. There's people being harassed and bullied and beaten by police. Right. That is happening right now. So if we aren't willing to get happy when the good things happen, like, come on, we're going to be sad a lot. There's going to be plenty of time to be angry and be sad. Let's yeah. take these moments and nourish ourselves. Give ourselves a shot in the arm to be like, okay, there is real progress here. And it's important from the political perspective that presidents and activists come out and say, no, 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 no. 
It's not all over. Everybody stay out, stay active, stay angry. Like I get that. And that is important. And I'm glad those voices are out there because you don't want the conservatives to say, hey, look, see, the bad apple got what he deserved and our justice system is fine. Let's move on. We don't want that. But at the same time, we have to balance that with being willing to celebrate when it's worth celebrating. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I mean, I'm on board. I mean, I think uh, I understand the sentiment. I understand the willingness to just say, wait a minute here, this is not really a victory or it's just a fleeting victory or what, all that. But at the same time, think about all the struggle that's been going on the last few years around Black Lives Matter, and all the work and all of the protests and all of the energy that's gone into getting to this point. You think he would have been found guilty if it wasn't for all of that? And now we have a victory. And I think in terms of empowerment and and liberation, you need to know that your efforts do work, right? They make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so celebration is a part of that liberation in a way. Yeah. It's interesting because Jonathan Zucker last week talked about this concept of learned helplessness in the Mm -hmm. black community. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. because of this victory now, there's a little bit less learned helplessness. That's right. right. We can see... You know, it, and it took, don't make any mistake, it took a heroic effort to get this across the finish line and get him convicted. I mean, which is was, crazy, right? Yeah. Which, is all, which is crazy. The, the, the murder was on video and this is what it took. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there's some of the inside baseball from Ellison and some of these other people. I, I, I was just reading about it. Don't want to go into it now, but it was intense. All right. And uh, right. It, caught, it cost a lot of money, took a lot of time. A lot of people made a lot of sacrifices to get that verdict done. Okay. But let's talk about the larger impact here, which is the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act of 2020, which Mm -hmm. is uh, also known as H.R. 7120. It has now passed the House of Representatives twice, once last year and again this year. It has not yet been taken up by the Senate. President Biden has said that he will sign it. Let's go through uh, some of the more important provisions of this bill. Uh, It grants power to the Justice Department Civil Rights Division to issue subpoenas to police departments. It provides grants to state attorneys general to create an independent process to investigate misconduct. It establishes a federal registry of police misconduct complaints and disciplinary actions. Enhances accountability for police officers who commit misconduct. It requires state and local law enforcement agencies that receive federal funding to adopt anti-discrimination policies. Prohibits federal police officers from using chokeholds or carotid holds. And it requires state and local law enforcement agencies that receive federal funding to do the same thing prohibits the issuance of no-knock warrants for drug raids. It changes the threshold for the permissible use of force by federal law enforcement officers from reasonableness to only when necessary to prevent death or serious bodily injury. Mandates that federal officers use deadly force only as a last resort and the de-escalation be attempted and conditions federal funding to state and local law enforcement agencies on the adoption of the same policy. And there are other provisions in the act mainly to do with requiring body-worn and dash-mounted cameras and reducing the transfer of military equipment to police forces. Can I ask you both to comment on this act and its chance of passage? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we talked last week about the filibuster. We talked about Joe Manchin and the problems with we both, we all three of us know the structural problems we face in the Senate. I do think that the Chauvin verdict, I think that the energy... Protests work, right? Demonstrations work. This is why the right has come out with all these bills uh, recently to try to uh, suppress the vote. I'm sorry, suppress. Yes, also suppress the vote. They also don't like voting, but protesting and make it sort of make it legal to hit 
protesters with your car to some extent. Uh, it, it, it's pretty wild what the, the sort of the laws they are proposing. I will say that 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 makes me a little bit more hopeful about the Senate being able to peel off some reasonable Republicans. In fact, I was just listening to something about that earlier today. I will say, though, that a lot of this happens, I think, at the local level. Like the federal government can do consent decrees, you can pass this legislation. But at the end of the day, it really comes down like police powers are designated for the states, right? So criminal law is largely a creature of state law. So if you really want to make the, these changes, what you have to do is change the prosecutors, which means you have to change the attorneys general of various states. You have to change the legislatures. I think that's where you really get this job done. That said, the power of the purse that the federal government has is a strong incentive. So I think that you get to force states to change if you can pass this legislation. So I'm more hopeful than I would have been if this Chauvin verdict had gone the other way, that's for sure. Yeah, that's what I was going to, exactly was going to say. I'm a little more hopeful because I was surprised by the show of the verdict. Mm-hmm. I was hoping, but I was also re- very ready to hear not guilty. Yep. And I was actually hoping that at least one thing would- Same thing with right. me. <laughs> me too. So maybe maybe the same thing is, is the case here. However, the structural blockages to having this pass, like the filibuster and all that, are pretty extensive. But you know what? I think about the civil rights era and how difficult it was to get those pieces of legislation, the key ones that we rely on now, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Act, and all of those things passed. What were the chances of passing those in the 1950s and early 60s? How likely did they seem to be? But it was this incredible energy in the society that got the ball moving. And then once you pass these legislations, then they, in turn, they come back in and they cause more change and they energize more. And it's like, you. well, let me put it this way. Whether or not we think it has a chance of passing is not really the issue. The issue is to try. Mm -hmm. You never know. You never know. And so you try. Same thing with climate change. It looks hopeless in many ways, but you fucking try. Mm-hmm. You yeah. go for it. And, and this th- is what we have to think here. This is really the issue of the 2020s is getting rid of this filibuster because it is literally holding back the dam from bursting in terms of progressive policies and really just moving <laughs> yeah. forward into the future. This is everything. So, all right. Well, against the backdrop of that legislation, I want to talk a little bit more about the police shooting in Columbus, Ohio. It's just tragic and awful. Let's start with the unconfirmed information. A 16-year-old girl, Micaiah Bryant, who was apparently living in a foster home, was being threatened by some other girls in the home who were trying to stab her. Someone called 911 and reported the threat. Note, it's unconfirmed who called 911. But the moment the cops arrived, there was a full-on brawl in progress, and it's undisputedly obvious from the video that Micaiah Bryant, who may have been the one who had called the cops, had a knife in her hand and was actually attacking the other girls with it. And within about 14 seconds after Officer Nicholas Reardon stepped out of his police vehicle, Micaiah Bryant was lying on the ground, mortally wounded. At the moment the officer fired the four shots that killed her, Micaiah Bryant was swinging a knife at another girl. Now, I've watched this video way too many times. My conclusion here is twofold. One is that it's possible that the shooting saved the other girl's life. For real. And two, mm. though, from a harm reduction point of view, the, a girl is still dead. Whereas if there was a stabbing and the officer had not fired, both might be alive today. So it's pretty clear that the police officers are authorized to use deadly force to stop an imminent threat to someone's life. This is not another George Floyd or Philando Castile or Dante Wright type incident. It's much more ambiguous. And we won't really know until the investigation is completed. I don't think 
this officer is going to be convicted of anything. And it, it just brings up all sorts of questions that I think we need to answer, though. In the past couple of days, I've seen numerous videos of cops in other countries de-escalating situations involving people armed with knives. They do it with a mix of talking, using riot shields or protective blankets, or just wrestling or martial arts tactics to grab the person's arm and take them to the ground safely. And I want to ask you both what you think about the situation. Does this fall into the same category as other racially motivated shootings? Because certainly BLM is treating it that way. And I just want to know if you think this cop would have acted differently if there were white girls brawling and should the police have done anything differently? Most importantly, though, hypothetically, if the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act were in place, would it have prevented this death? I know that's an awful lot of speculation, but we have to start somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I get why Black Lives Matter just jumps on this because first of all, that's their brand is what they do. They're activists and that's the position they take on things. Then let me rewind a little bit. D Derek Chauvin was, his history shows him to be probably a racist, right? Like either a, a low-key racist or a high-key racist, but a fucking racist, right? And the way that he treated George Floyd was explicitly excessive and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is not that, right? But that doesn't mean that there's not structural racism sort of at play here. I don't think, I mean, I, and I'm, let me make an analogy. When when white college kids trash their campus, burning cars, flipping cars over, right, but getting in fights, going absolutely batshit crazy, they're treated as, oh, kids who are screwing around. But mm -hmm. if you, you switch those people into black people and it's a riot and that is the mindset that this cop comes where he gets out of the car and he just starts shooting. Right. I had to think back to I'll make it another analogy, another comparison, and that is Philando Castile, who had who reached it with a legal gun owner, et cetera, he gets shot right in his car. And then this other guy, it's recently happened in Ohio, this white guy oh. gets pulled over and, mm. right, and he just gets in a shouting match with these officers, puts his hand on his gun and just drives away. And so, yes, there isn't, I don't think there's explicit racist animus here that the cop is like, oh, there's some black people that I hate. Let me shoot this girl. Like, I don't think that's what it is, but it, but, but that's not what structural racism is, right? Mm -hmm. that's, not what, that's not what implicit bias is. Implicit bias is it's built into the cop to see two black girls as criminals, crazy people who need to be stopped, and two white girls doing the same thing as just two kids having a cat fight. He might mm -hmm. actually bust out his camera so it's something he can whack off to later for all, for all we know, <laughs> right? Like, it, it'll be like, it'll be like fun, like, oh, look at these two girls having a little fight. But the black girls, it's like, oh, these two monsters are fighting each other. Same thing mm -hmm. with like, the black kid is always a black man, the 13-year-old black man, right? Dylan Roof is just a kid, though. Right. Mm -hmm. Just a kid, just a kid who got on a wrong path. And that is, I think, what's at play here. And that's what Black Lives Matter is. I, if I'm Black Lives Matter, that's how I'm thinking about this. Right. I'm thinking about this in those terms. Right. Yeah. Sorry for the crude joke, everybody. No, that was that was appropriate. I think. But <laughs> <laughs> well, what you said makes a lot of sense. And I think that there is this implicit bias, this racism that's internalized and really not very conscious that we are all struggle with, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of being self-reflective and trying to get at that. And I think we need to be reflective as a society here. What's going on? Why did this happen? Why is there this heightened sense of like trigger happiness, right? Mm -hmm. That And certainly, clearly, we have to look at structural racism as being a, a causal element of that. 
we also need to think about why are these two girls bullying this girl in a foster home, right? Like, why are these three girls in a foster home in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Let's back up. Let's back up and go with the 30,000 feet, right? What are the structural problems that right. cause these kids' parents to have to give them up or mm -hmm. want to give them up, right? Because I guarantee you, if they were normal, like, you know, normal, that's fucked up to say. But I really mean is well-off, middle-class women, I bet you those kids would still be with their parents. But they're yeah. not because of the structural racism that disproportionate, when you go to a foster home, you're going to see people of color there. And there's a reason why, because mothers and fathers of color are, are less equipped to take care of their children proportionally. proportionally. Right. Um, yeah. And then there's structural reasons for that. There's structural racism reasons for that. I mean, it is a very challenging place for a child to grow up in, to be in, right? Mm -hmm. A place like that. And it is going to to cause some emotional issues. And maybe this girl it was just expressing some anguish in, and this is how she was doing it. Mm -hmm. And But why did she get shot immediately? Why do, weren't the police able to use less lethal force? Mm -hmm. They have to use some force, but less <laughs> lethal force? I mean, there are techniques. As, uh, I'm, I'm a Nikito guy. I know mm -hmm. how to take uh, disarm a knife, right? There are ways of de-escalating. Other countries do it. That's what we have to ask. Why does it always come down to this trigger happiness with mm -hmm. cops? Mm -hmm. It seems like, I mean, sure. one after the other. And, yeah. and I don't know what the internal dynamics were in this cop's mind about what they were thinking, how racist they were. How are we supposed to know that? But that's not really the question here, right? The question is, is how do we get past this, you know? Yeah. Well, I can speak a little bit to this because whether or not the guy's a racist, okay, his mind is doing pattern recognition and right. he's going deadly threat, right? That's exactly right. Eliminate this threat. And so there's so many different things that play into that identification. And that is the very definition of unconscious bias right there. So, all right, well, I want to switch gears a little bit now into our main topic, which is just sort of we're going to move away from these very personal, very disturbing incidents on American streets and look at America's history of violence, uh, the weapons trade, and all the rest of it. So this actually started out this week when I was writing the show with a question that I read on Facebook about mass production, capitalism versus weapons of mass destruction. And it sparked me to sort of think about the arms trade in general and the weapons business in general. And it can't be separated from capitalism, just as capitalism can't be separated from the problem of American gun violence. This stuff all makes money. So let's start with some facts about the arms trade. The world spends currently about $3 trillion per year on armaments, which is a staggering figure. It is. It really uh, is. A lot of those arms are domestically manufactured by the world's military powers. The arms trade refers to governments and their respective arms manufacturers selling weapons to other nations and factions. And the current number for that comes to about $200 billion per year for all nations. As recently as 2007, the total value of arms transfers was just over half that number at $120 billion. Clearly, the business of killing is very good and getting better. So during the period from 2007 to 2017, the U.S. share of arms transfers made up 79.5% of the world's total. That number comes from the U.S. State Department's 2019 World Military Expenditures and Arms Transfer Report. The report also lists the other major arms exporters. Russia accounts for 5.4%, France 2.3%. UK 2%, Germany 2%, China 1.6%, Italy 1.1%. 1 
Israel 0.9% and Sweden 0.7% and Spain 0.7%. Clearly, nobody even comes close to the United States. The US dramatically leads the entire rest of the world by four to one in the export of arms, okay, instruments of death. Where are these weapons going? Mostly to East Asia and the Middle East, accounting for 44% of US arms sales. Unspecified or multinational is 28%. Europe buys 12%, Oceania 4%, South Asia 4%, Canada and Mexico 3%. So the bulk of this trade is coming from the United States to the Middle East and the Far East. Okay. And we know that's probably mostly like Korea, South Korea and, mm -hmm. and those areas, which we have mutual defense treaties with. So anyway, before we discuss the implications of this weapons trade, let's talk about what else $200 billion per year could buy. Okay. An article in The Guardian in 2020 reported that a German study forecast that for a total of $330 billion, which is less than we spend in two years on arms trade, we could permanently end world hunger by 2030. That's only $33 billion per year to solve this problem forever. And it's a severe problem. According to this report, 700 million people in the world are food insecure, which is a fancy way of saying they go to bed hungry every night. Mm -hmm. And it's an old dilemma. And every time someone brings it up, they're accused of being utopian. Like, Sean, you're a dreamer. Yeah, we don't live in that world. Okay, but why? All right. Why is it so insane to ask the question, why can't we feed everyone? Cynics in Econ 101 would have called this the guns versus butter dilemma, but even that re reeks of privilege since many starving people are lucky to get a bowl of rice and have probably never tasted butter. Okay. So I want to read this famous excerpt that everyone's heard, but like it's powerful and it's important from President Dwight D. Eisenhower's 1953 speech on the cost of militarism. Uh, this has been so widespread that it, you, you'll see it at a Pink Floyd concert. Okay. <laughs> Roger Waters put it up on the screen at the last concert I went to. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. The cost of one modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete pavement. We pay for a single fighter with half a million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is not a way of life at all in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. Okay, that's Dwight D. Eisenhower, Republican president, last good one, 1953. <laughs> Joe and Christoph, I want to ask both of you, what more important human goal could there be than feeding, housing, and clothing everyone? What is wrong with us? that almost 70 years have passed since that speech and we still can't seem to choose peace over violence. I think very few people would argue with uh, Eisenhower's goals and principle. Yeah, of course some would, and maybe even more than before at this point because mm. of such a radicalization on the right, but most people wouldn't. Well, and, and obviously what we need to ask is why are we spending so much on arms globally? Why is the United States, you know, what is it, 78% you said? Uh, I mean, it's just, it's staggering. So we have to ask, what is the function of this? What's causing it, right? What are people getting out of it? What is the flow of power in the world that allows these things to happen? Well, we have to look at the reason for it. And I think that it's a long and complicated answer, but there is one. And I think it goes back to 
largely what you said, Sean, about the fact that it makes money. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good place to start. I think there's more to it than that, but it's a really good place to start. Yeah, I, yeah, money, power, capitalism, right? I mean, these are the answers that we're hovering around here, it seems. And I think that is right. I think also that those are simplistic answers to the question. I think it is more complex. I mean, I think you can get into the complexities of just the human animal and human nature and how we structure our societies. I think that becomes a factor here. But ultimately, it comes down, it, it, we talked about the top of like the Hobbesian trap right? We talked about at the top of the show, that problem, right? Now I'm talking about just abstract ideas kind of, but uh, talk about Star Trek and this idea of like the global government idea and how hard that is to achieve when people don't feel like they can trust each other. I mean, it seems to me that what we're struggling with here is the core of the the dichotomy in humanity, which is to dominate versus cooperate. Mm -hmm. And the incentive to dominate is so strong because of the Hobbesian trap, right? Like precisely because of the Hobbesian trap, I think. And from that grows things like the pursuit of power and ultimately capitalism. And now the momentum is such that the capitalist momentum is just so powerful at this point. Like, how do you even begin to stop that? It's, I mean, to me, the only thing that really ends up stopping this sort of thing are catastrophic problems that affect us all, i.e. climate change, right? Like that's what ends up putting the brakes on this sort of thing, I think. Because like when everyone is necessarily going to be affected, you can't buy your way out of the problem where you kind of can, but you can't buy your way out of the problem in the same way that you can buy your way out of other problems. Like, then we have to start to work together, but it might be too late for that. And that's a really scary thing. So anyway, that's how I'm thinking about this, but it's it's scary. It's scary. Well, it is. And it's not just like, it's an economic tragedy. Okay. And we look at all the things that we could have if if there was a peace dividend and we were able to make peace, but it's even worse because we have the consequences of the continued war is it's just really awful in, in human terms. Okay. But even worse than that is that a lot of these arms come back to be used against us. Okay? Right. And that's really the major theme that I'm going to be hitting here about how our choice to make money on armaments is actually harming us militarily and strategically. And so, and also, by the way, a lot of times the folks that are making money off of these arms are not the same folks whose kids are going to have to go then go face those arms on the battlefield, right? Like they are not the kids, they're not, their kids aren't, aren't going to go fight in Iraq and, and right. Because the technology of an RPG, for example, right? Like that technology is the basic, a basic bazooka type technology, right? And so mm-hmm. that comes from the United States, right? And Germany from the West. So the poor kids go and fight those wars. Poor kids tend to get shot in the street. The, like the CEOs and people who run the NRA, their kids are not in harm's way in the same way. And there's also just far fewer of them. Yeah. And it's a major class issue, right? Because yes. this is what you're yes. highlighting is that, okay, so you sell a weapon, the profits are booked, stock dividends are paid to shareholders. That weapon's out there and some foreign nation and some American soldiers going to be killed by that weapon maybe 10 years later. And that's just considered capitalism. But like you said, it is a poor person's kid who is going to get killed by that weapon, not the person who made the money. So uh, this somehow, it just transcends traditional concepts of disloyalty or treason that someone is betraying America in this way or that American company is betraying America, but it's rationalized in the name of the class structure. Mm-hmm. So, And 
Our allies also, they fight wars of ethnic cleansing or oppression. I mean, they do terrible things in our name. And there's always plausible deniability by the company of any bad intent because they can say, well, we've complied with all the regulations about selling these arms. And But it's hard to look at this any other way. They know what's happening and they're happy to do it because of the money. And we have a terrible track record on this point. So mm-hmm. I, wanted to, I want to talk about a specific example, and this is the war in Yemen. And according oh. to... A 2019 report by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace titled American Weapons in the Wrong Hands, U.S. military equipment has been transferred from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to a variety of militias, including some linked to Al-Qaeda. The report says these arms sales continue despite both countries' history of diverting arms to favored militias. Saudi Arabia has been purchasing weapons from third parties to pass on to allied governments and groups at least since the 1970s, sometimes on behalf of the U.S. government. This is all like a lot of really dirty backhanded dealings. And remember what Saudi Arabia represents. It's not just a medieval Islamist monarchy that tortures and imprisons dissidents and oppresses women. It is also a rogue state that carved up Saudi-born journalist Jamal Khashoggi with a bone saw, possibly while he was still alive, when he went to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to get papers that would allow him to get married. I mean, this is it's just the, the most horrible story you can imagine. I mean, that he was tortured and murdered while his fiance was waiting for him in the car outside the embassy. It doesn't get any worse. And you got Trump and he's going, they're very, very fine people. people. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's worshipped by the orb. You know that picture of the- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> It's like, you know, <laughs> it, it, it just, you just can't, you have to laugh. Uh, yeah, it's so fucked up. It's just so awful. Just so awful. <laughs> I think um, you have to, oh, go, go ahead, Joe. You have to look at the sort of the power dynamics from different scales and also different dimensions. I mean, you have the international, you know, one country versus another country. You have, you know, geopolitics. You have the internal politics between class structures, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you guys have talked about essentially you have factions within capitalism, you have like the fossil fuel people you have, and the the interests sometimes coincide, sometimes they don't. But it's the way power flows through all of that that's important, Mm -hmm. which determines the outcome, right? And and so we kind of have to go deeper than just looking at just one country versus another country, or even just between like rich people and poor people. it, It is also how these different factions work within the system. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to things like, you know, arms sales and the NRA, right? And things like that, which, you know, pedal machines of violence, the reason for it, it, it really benefits certain segments of our society far more than others. And these segments are very powerful. The other thing I would say is even though it has a, this economic logic to it, it turns into a cultural logic. Right. Just mm-hmm. like with uh, climate change, it was a fossil fuel companies that didn't want to, you know, wean away from fossil fuels, obviously. But then they maneuvered things so that it turned into a cultural mm-hmm. cultural war issue. Right? Yeah. And the same thing with weapons. It's turning into a cultural war issue where mm-hmm. it's become part of the identity of the right to fight for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, you know? even in specifically. OK, great point. The, the Saudis. All right, are are some of the worst people on earth. Okay. This is well known and, and it's been going on for a long time. And let me just tell you what the consequences are of this, according to the Carnegie report. The Saudi government has been using US weapons to commit gross human rights abuses in the war in Yemen, which began in 2015. This is now six years, okay? It's attacked so bad. 
school buses and international aid organizations. It has used cluster munitions and white phosphorus that burns your skin to the bone. It has deliberately targeted the wounded and medical personnel, journalists and non-combatants, violating every treaty, every Geneva Convention, right. everything, all the laws of war are being violated there. And yet we don't stop selling them weapons. The total number of people killed in the Yemen war as of December 1st, 2020 is 233,000 people, including more than 3,000 child deaths, mainly from indirect causes such as disruption of infrastructure and food distribution. But mm. People are starving to death. All right. And there's no end in sight to this ongoing tragedy being conducted with our weapons in our name. And also France is involved and the UK is also cashing in. And in case you feel like getting misty eyed about the queen. about. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say one thing, though. I think United States abides by better codes. It does not, you know, obviously has, it has uh, rules of war that it goes by. But the ultimate effect, though, think about it. Well, what did the Iraqi war cause in terms of human suffering and damage? Mm. Over a million people died in that war. Some from direct military confrontation, some from starvation, lack of medicine. And then it destabilized the entire region, leading to all kinds of other problems that cause a whole much more suffering. The United States has been involved in one war after another of different scales, mm -hmm. all the way back to its beginning. And it, it is a very martial country. And I think that also feeds back into the problems that we have domestically with uh, the mm -hmm. police violence, with uh, gun violence and all that. Because you think about it, we train these young people, mostly young men, to go out in the world and kill largely people of color, right? Almost exclusively, in fact. I mean, when's the last time we went to well, maybe Bosnia is the only example I can think of mm -hmm. otherwise. And then, you know, it's the same cohort of people that then go and work for the police, right? right, right. And right. they're trained. They have that, right. you know, they're as young people, right? Where they're very susceptible to change. They're trained to think this way. And then they bring that, those unconscious biases mixed with racism in many cases, but not necessarily no. just about racism. It's more than that. It's also about sort of how you perceive the world and how you perceive the enemy and how you, and so instead of being a police officer, then you're not just, you're not just walking the beat in the street, you're, you're patrolling a hostile area. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So you were in Afghanistan. That's a really great point, too, because wars have become increasingly more urban also. Right. right. So, I mean, they really are doing the same thing in a lot of ways. Right. Like, right. You're walking down a street, by the way, in an environment that it really is hostile in a lot in some ways. Right. Because people are like, yeah. wait, we actually don't like police. Right. You are <laughs> not on our side. You have demonstrated for hundreds of years that you are not on our side. And so we don't trust you. But, and I think that was really insightful, Joe, because it's this us versus them mentality. And this idea, and this loops back into sort of what we were just talking about before too, the problems of unifying as a world is that this idea that like, rather than pull other people up, we will just dominate them, right? We will police them and we will dominate them and we will extract resources rather than pull them up and then eliminate the violence and the hatred that way. It's easier just to try to suppress it until it's not, right? And then, yeah. right, and then you get to where we are now. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to move on to some historical examples because I really feel like the the militarization, whether it's a police or whether it's the arms trade itself, it's really almost like an interior occupying force in our country. And this has been going on. A lot of people really don't know 
the depths to which this goes. It's certainly not taught in history class. And no. it goes no. all the way, it goes back to the beginning. It's been going on for hundreds of years. This goes back, goes back to the founding of our country and particularly to the Civil War. Okay. And this is something that I couldn't believe when I read this. It, representatives of what would become the Confederate Army had actually set up an office to purchase arms and supplies at the Fifth Avenue Hotel in New York City beginning in November of 1860. They knew the war was coming and they went to go and purchase arms. And guess who they purchased it from? Americans. All right. And so these initially included eight inch Columbia cannons and 18 pounder heavy guns, tents, supplies, and other material. According to an article on HistoryNet, over the next 16 days, they would meet with a procession of representatives from some of the best known companies in the country and were able to conduct their business somewhat openly without interference from federal, state, or local authorities. Later, they expanded their purchases to include 1,000-pound cannons, 3,500 rounds of solid shot, and 4,000 shells, as well as 100,000 pounds of lead. French company E.I. DuPont de Moors sold the Confederates 1,250 barrels of gunpowder. The Colt Manufacturing Company sold them 300 Army pistols, and they made a deal for 930 Enfield rifles from British company Robbins and Lawrence. By January 3rd, 1861, they had acquired $93,596 worth of weapons for shipment to Savannah, Georgia, which $93,000 was a massive sum in 1860. Soon after the war began, the North embargoed further weapons shipments to the South, but there was, of course, continued smuggling and significant damage had already been done. According to HistoryNet, Confederate battlefield victories depended in part on supplies of Northern arms, particularly in the early stages of the war. Northern guns in Southern hands, a phenomenon that resulted from the tireless efforts of men such as Sims, Hardy, and other Southern agents, was an unlikely combination that very nearly destroyed the Union. And of course, this kind of treasonous trade didn't stop there. Business ties with enemies of the U.S. have been just constant since our nation's founding. And this also came into play in a slightly different situation during the Bolshevik Revolution, where American Secretary of State Elihu Root a hard right conservative under President Woodrow Wilson arranged to prop up the failing Russian provisional government with credits totaling $185 million. Now, of course, we didn't give them weapons at that point, but they could buy those weapons with that money. So it's kind of the same thing. And this was based on a promise from Russian Minister of War Alexander Kerensky to continue fighting Germany. According to a 1984 op-ed in the New York Times, this was done because Root expected power to pass to a strong rightist military dictator who would prosecute the war and contain radicalism. Instead, Kerensky's weak offensive against Germany collapsed along with the provisional government and the Bolsheviks seized power. By backing right-wing forces, the U.S. missed its opportunity to have any influence over the new Russian government. According to this article, through avoidable misjudgments, many of them similar to current policies, America was an indirect partner in the communists' ascent to power in 1917. <laughs> so this just illustrates profoundly how right-wing bad faith, along with historical illiteracy and an emphasis on creating regimes with which America can do business, has had a profound negative impact on world history. So I just want to give you guys a chance to re respond to those two. Wow, that's a fascinating history. That really was fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And it's so true. I mean, like, yeah, it doesn't make sense at some level, right? I mean, why would we be doing such counterproductive things, right? Unless you start thinking about the fact that, you know, you have this veneer of patriotism, mm -hmm. right? And underneath it, you have the bubble of business and people mm -hmm. self-serving themselves and doing what they want to do and then hiding it under the pretense of nationalism or patriotism 
are fighting for your good causes or religion, right? Religion mm-hmm. is a big one, right? But yet underneath, it's resources, it's wealth, it's power, right? Always percolating, right? And yeah. the more they hide it, the better. And yeah. so a lot of this is not in the history books that our children read. That's right, Joe. They certainly don't learn that in history class. I remember how awkward it was when we did slavery in history class and I was the only black kid in the room. And I remember how awkward that was, but I also remember how short it was. Both of those things at the same time, like, wait a second, that's all we're talking about. It was like, the, anyway, that's neither here nor there. The, the American history, the American uh uh, educational system is a whole other show, right? right. Uh, but as you're talking, Joe, I think about these power dynamics, right? And I think about how these things come back to bite us in the ass, right? And it's because the interests are not the interests of a broad coalition of the country. They are the interests of a handful of capitalists, right? Exactly. So, and so, and that's the problem. So they're not thinking in terms of the larger. So, so in Afghanistan, not so much Afghanistan, but Iraq, certainly. Iraq certainly was, that was just an obvious almost ham-handed grab for resources and regime change. And that was for a handful of people, Halliburton and co, right? Like that whole group of people, that's what that was about. And it's the same thing with the arms output from the United States, right? It's like, look, that is not in the long-term benefiting even us, let alone the rest of the world. It's not even literally, it's not in our own interest in the end when these bombs come home to roost. Yeah. And it's also... The next story, I've got two stories actually about World War II and mm-hmm. the absolute treachery, treason, and just villainy that took place during that by U.S. corporations. And so it really drives home this point. Sure. So this is about IBM and the Holocaust. Uh, the 2003 documentary, The Corporation, exposed the sordid dealings of companies with pre-war Germany and revealed that IBM had sold punch card machines and other equipment to the Nazis before and during the war. These were used to tabulate census data and identify and target Jews. This revelation was based on the book by Edwin Black called IBM and the Holocaust. The book also documented an ongoing relationship between IBM founder Thomas J. Watson and the National Socialist German Workers Party, the Nazis. Uh, Watson had traveled to Germany in 1933 and invested a million dollars to build a factory in Berlin. According to Black's book, every concentration camp had a punch card department and that without IBM's machinery, continuing upkeep and service, as well as the supply of punch cards, whether located on site or off site, Hitler's camps could never have managed the numbers they did. In 2001, a lawsuit against IBM over these claims was dropped after IBM paid $3 million into a fund for Holocaust survivors. And I mean, that's just pathetic. Okay. We're talking about millions of deaths they were involved in. And they, they, yeah. Yeah. So, and as horrific as that is, though, that's not all when it comes to American business involvement with Nazi Germany. The Washington Post reported in 1998 that Ford and General Motors also had extensive ties to pre-war Germany. Quote, this is a long quote here, but bear with me. The relationship of Ford and GM to the Nazi regime goes back to the 1920s and 1930s when the American car companies competed against each other for access to the lucrative German market. Hitler was an admirer of American mass production techniques and an avid reader of the anti-Semitic tracts penned by Henry Ford. I regard Henry Ford as my inspiration, Hitler told a Detroit news reporter two years before becoming the German chancellor in 1933, explaining why he kept a life-size portrait of the American automaker next to his desk. Although Ford later renounced his anti-Semitic writings, yeah, right. Yeah, okay. He remained an admirer of Nazi Germany and sought to keep America out of the coming war. In July 1938, four months after the German annexation of Austria, he accepted the highest medal that Nazi Germany could bestow on a foreigner, 
the Grand Cross of the German Eagle. The following month, a senior executive for General Motors, James Mooney, received a similar medal for his distinguished service to the Reich. The granting of such awards reflected the vital place that the U.S. automakers had in Germany's increasingly militarized economy. In 1935, GM agreed to build a new plant near Berlin to produce the aptly named Blitz truck, which would later be (laughs) used by the German army for its Blitzkrieg attacks on Poland, France, and the Soviet Union. German Ford was the second largest producer of trucks for the German army after GM Opel, according to U.S. Army reports. American managers of both GM and Ford went along with the conversion of their German plants to military production at a time when U.S. government documents show they were still resisting calls by the Roosevelt administration to step up military production in their plants at home. (laughs) The importance of the American automakers went beyond making trucks for the German army. The Schneider Report, now available to researchers at the National Archives, states that American Ford agreed to a complicated barter deal that gave the Reich increased access to large quantities of strategic raw materials, notably rubber. Author Snell says that Nazi armaments chief Albert Speer told him in 1977 that Hitler would never have considered invading Poland without synthetic fuel technology provided by General Motors. When American GIs invaded Europe in June 1944, they did so in Jeeps, trucks, and tanks manufactured by the big three motor companies in one of the largest crash militarization programs ever undertaken. It came in as an unpleasant surprise to discover that the enemy was also driving trucks manufactured (laughs) by Ford and Opel, a 100% GM-owned subsidiary, and flying Opel-built warplanes. Chrysler's role in the German rearmament effort was much less significant. And this is the worst part. (laughs) When the U.S. (laughs) Army liberated the Ford plants in Cologne and Berlin, they found destitute foreign workers confined behind barbed wire and company documents extolling the genius of the Fuhrer, according to reports filed by soldiers at the scene. A U.S. Army report by investigator Henry Schneider, dated September 5th, 1945, accused the German branch of Ford of serving as an arsenal of Nazism, at least for military vehicles, with the consent of the parent company in Dearborn, Michigan. End quote. And there's a lot more in the story about specific treasonous acts of Ford and GM officials. They actually profited from German slave labor of prisoners conscripted into working in their factories all during the war, production for which the American companies were handsomely paid. After the war was over, no one was prosecuted and the companies came out smelling like roses. And the U.S. government even paid $32 million to General Motors to cover the repair of bomb damage to its German plants. This is one of those moments, guys, I I was aware of some of this, of course, but to see it in print and to read it out loud, it just is devastating. What are your thoughts? Well, I honestly, it makes sense to me. I don't, I hadn't heard some of these details. I know they're pretty stark, but it doesn't surprise me. Uh, And I'm a student of, of, of this stuff. And yeah, I mean, the things that happened under the radar, all of these things that were, have been just summarily erased from history. Mm. You know, there's so much to it. And fascism was very popular in the Americas. It was very popular in the United States in the 1920s and 30s. Hitler was celebrated in many circles in, in, in the United States. And all of that was just kind of just buried, <laughs> you know, yeah. fit the narrative, right? And to hear that all of this, these machinations are happening with corporations between these countries is not at all surprising to me. It's sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, that humanity has to is there in this point, and it's still happening. You know, it really is. I mean, if you look at the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States, there's a lot of that. 
And if you look at why we had, like you said, Christoph, the Gulf War, both one and two, a lot of it had to do with this, these massive stockpiles of weapons that we needed to use so we could and then, you know, the government could pay these companies more money to make even more. Let's use up all our, our bombs so we, then we have to make more bombs, right? Mm-hmm. You know, more sophisticated, more expensive bombs. Right. And, I mean, it, it, there's so much of that. And uh, we don't even get into the oil because that's a whole different show. But <laughs> yeah, it really is. And I mean, I'm laughing. It's not funny. It's not funny, but it's I'm, so I'm like, wow, but not wow, right? Like it, it's blatant. It's right there in the open for anybody who wants to see it. I mean, World War One is another great example. The Vickers machine gun is essentially a copy of the Maxim machine gun, which was the machine gun that revolutionized war, right? We're talking about a war, the first really all mechanized war. Right. And, and but started out with tactics for cannons and maybe some muskets and, and literal sabers, right? Like those were the tactics in the beginning of World War One, and they were running into very expensive, very, very effective, by the way, machine guns. I mean, so those machine guns were among the most effective because they were, yeah. were water-cooled. It was, they were basically like, a, like almost like an artillery emplacement, and it, they just mowed down millions and millions. Again, I keep bringing this up. The end of cavalry. Yeah, the end of cavalry for sure. I'm like a Marxist today. Like, this is poor people of Europe and the United States being fed into the capitalist machine of the Maxim machine gun and the Vickers machine gun. And the machine gun was so effective that it was also used in World War II. I also just want to point out too that there's a distinction to be made here. I'm thinking about it as you guys are talking, and that is also the United States government famously used Nazi scientists after the war, right? They Mm -hmm. were given a pass, they became American citizens, and they helped us develop the nuclear bomb and various other like huge steps forward for the United States rocketry rocketry to balance things with the USSR. Right. And meanwhile, so we freedom, rah, 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 rah. But also we were going to have these Nazi scientists because it's expedient. But Mm -hmm. I still think there's a distinction to be made there between that and the private corporation doing it purely for profit. Right. Like Roosevelt or or Truman saying, look, we're going to do hush hush on this because we really think that the Soviet Union and by the way, the Soviet Union really is an existential threat, right? For the planet. Maybe we'll look the other way here. That's a lot different than saying stockholders need X. So therefore, who cares? Damn the consequences. And we'll look the other way on those. Oh, yeah, we follow the country's regulations. So everything's okay, right? Good point. Yeah. yeah. I think morally, there is always a big distinction between government and uh, corporations. It doesn't mean that you can't get some very corrupt people in government, but at least they are sworn to work for the people, right? And to right. protect the country. And even the bad presidents protect the country, right? So, right, right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, except Trump, but, you know. <laughs> Uh, There have been few other presidents who have betrayed our country like he did. Yeah. So just the business of arms, though. You guys remember the episode of Deep Space Nine called Business as Usual? Mm -hmm. It was a really poignant episode. And and just to summarize it briefly here, Quark gets involved with arms traders. And he's such a good salesman that he ends up almost brokering a deal to sell weapons to this horrible dude called the Regent of Palomar. And Quark finds out that the weapons are going to be used to commit a genocide of millions. He backs out and hijinks and a firefight ensue and people are killed and <laughs> the, the deal doesn't go through. So this genocide is averted, right? And the point of the episode to me was to show me that even a committed scumbag like Quark 
ends up having far better ethics than the world's arms traders. And mm. I'm setting this up for this final section where I want to talk about America's small arms manufacturers and what they've done to our nation by selling small arms to our own citizens. But right. before we launch into that, I want to give you a chance to comment about this Star Trek episode. I remember it well, yeah. Uh, and Star Trek uses allegories all the time to talk about contemporary social issues. And the, the Ferengis have really a fascinating sort oh, of race that Star Trek, the Star Trek universe has added, right? And they really represent this sort of like raw greed, capitalism, and so forth. But they're also very so pure that they, you know, you can sort of look at them as just being completely about that. And and that isn't the way the world works. Right? We know that it's a, we mix capitalism with all kinds of other pre-modern hierarchy mm. and so forth that happen together. And also, I think Quark's point, as some, another show talked about human nature and how humans are nice and pleasant and happy people until you take away their basic needs, like their food and shelter and so forth, and they become ruthless. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That was another point he made. So I, the wonderful thing about it is it makes you think. It really makes you think about the issues. So I'm glad you brought that up, Sean. Yeah, that, that's a really great reference. I, I don't have much to add other than to say I just I wonder, do you think there'll ever be a show that we get through the entire show without bringing up Star Trek at least once? Nope. I don't I think so. I really hope not. I really hope not because it's always so relevant. Like you say, Joe, the allegory is there. It is a contemporary look. And I mean, and, and it's in a lot of ways, various species are seem to me themselves deep dives into elements of our species. Absolutely. Right? You know, yeah. and so the, the Ferengi element there and also Quark and certainly his brother and Nog and all of them, they also have these sort of endearing qualities as well. And perhaps it's just because you know exactly what to expect from them, right? right. They, mm -hmm. they are not complex in the same way that human beings are. Like they have their rules of acquisition. My favorite is about like, is about ripping off your family, which is like, it's justified to rip off your family. Anyway, but I, I won't continue on that because, uh, but I just love Star Trek. I'm glad we talk about it all the time. The thing about Star Trek is it's a great sounding board. The writers were very aware of all the issues that we're talking about, and they dove deeply into the ethics right. and, and wove them into stories that can get into people's minds, bypass their defenses, and teach a lesson. And that is why I think the show is so good and why I hope we never stop talking about it. And I'm also looking forward to when we can bring in The Expanse because that's another yes. incredible- uh, Isn't it good? Oh, yeah. It's that, real that's good. That's the best sci-fi in a long time. It honestly. is outstanding the best science time. fiction. It is such and what a commentary on what the world is like. And oh, boy. Oh, no, boy, it's yeah. great. And the only <laughs> drawback to that is that when I start thinking about us actually exploring and colonizing the solar system, I'm like, oh, shit, here we go. So here goes, here comes the capitalism. That's exactly right. what we're talking about right now. Here comes the capitalism. You know? It is. It's, it's <laughs> literally, it's an occupying force within our system. Okay. It is the fly in the ointment. It is es essentially, it ruins everything. And I don't know how we get beyond it, but uh, let's just keep going sure. in our show today because- I think the real point here is that chickens come home to roost, okay? Mm -hmm. And for America, we have been doing this to the rest of the world for a long time. And now our militarism and violence is coming home to roost in our own society. And this is not an attempt to give a comprehensive history of 
U.S. small arms manufacturers or their lobbying arms like the NRA or the Gun Owners of America or National Association for Gun Rights. All these organizations are just, they're, they're filthy and their only objective seems to be to keep this whole capitalist dominance hierarchy going. Mm. Maybe we'll do a show about that in the future mm. and, yeah. and discuss gun control and regulation and all that. But I want to talk more philosophically right now about what we've done to ourselves as a nation, because it's one thing to sell weapons to other countries where we don't see the blowback, places like Yemen, and of course, this epic treason of corporate America during our past wars. But I don't think we've even scratched the surface as to the kind of treachery that's going on now in corporate boardrooms, especially those of global corporations who don't give two shits about the well-being of American citizens. But I want to set the stage for us to really examine this epic blunder we've made as a country of turning the small arms industry loose on our own citizens, in many cases, turning them into enemy combatants. Let me say this again. We've armed Americans with 400 million pistols, rifles, and shotguns during peacetime and untold billions of rounds of ammunition. That's more than one weapon for every man, woman, and child in the United States. It's an enormously profitable business, and the lobbyists for that business have put a stranglehold on our politics to the point where even when we're having more than a mass shooting every single day, we can't do anything to stem the flow of these weapons into the streets of our cities, into our grocery stores, churches, movie theaters, and schools. Red states are passing more and more laws to allow ever less restrictive purchases of guns by almost anyone. And it's not just the purchases. Open carry laws mean that more and more we're seeing armed citizens absolutely everywhere, and no one ever knows if an armed person they see in a coffee shop or at the gas station is just a paranoid nutcase with a gun in a coffee shop or a paranoid nutcase with a gun in a coffee shop who's about to shoot everyone. And there's absolutely no way to know. And so efforts to tighten restrictions on firearms at the national level fail year after year. And I want to talk numbers for a second because this is also going to blow your mind. More Americans have died from gun violence since 1968 when we started keeping records than have died in all the wars in American history. As of 2017, that number was 1.5 million people. And since annual gun deaths are between 30 and 40,000, we can add at least another 150,000 for that total, for a toll of about 1.65 million Americans. And that's just since 1968. We'd have to add millions more victims if we counted everyone killed by a privately owned firearm since our nation's founding. The U.S. defense budget is expected to be $733 billion in 2021, yet not a penny of that can protect any American from being gunned down on our streets at any time of the day or night. It can't protect our children. We've come to expect school shootings as a part of the dreary cadence of this undeclared war right here at home. We've come to expect workplace shootings, along with epic random mayhem caused by some 20-something white guy who decides to spray lead in a Walmart or a massage parlor just because he feels like it. And this brings us full circle to where we started the show today with police violence and its deadly consequences. Because as much as we like to dunk on cops, and we should be dunking on cops who shoot innocent suspects, they're trigger happy because everyone they come into contact with is likely to be armed. Right. Mm -hmm. Even if someone isn't armed, cops have to assume they are. So we can talk about better training and screening out racists all we want, but we can't fully stop police violence until we reduce the number of weapons on our streets. I know I personally wouldn't want to be out there in that kind of threat environment trying to arrest people. So it still doesn't give cops any excuse for their racism, but it's a jungle out there with 400 million guns. What do you guys think? It's not just the people who have been murdered, but it's all of the other damage as well. I mean, I have a friend who was a receptionist in a, in a, in a corporation in Boston, 
She was sick one day. She called in sick. A friend of hers replaced her. Some man walked in, gunned her down, proceeded to gun down four more people. And she felt like she was she cheated death, that she should have died. She should have been there. Her friend died instead of her. And it triggered an emotional crisis that has not yet resolved itself some 15 years later. Oh, right? my God. I mean, this is what we're talking about. I saw this little seven-year-old boy's picture on Facebook today. Sweet little thing. Had been gunned down during a road rage incident. And it's just mm-hmm. like, there's such a deep personal side to this issue. It's hard to disconnect from it mm-hmm. and look at it dispassionately. And maybe we shouldn't, right? We shouldn't do that. But I think the numbers you mentioned are really critical as well. I don't know where we go with this. If Sandy Hook didn't do it, I mean, that was beyond the pale to me. If Sandy Hook didn't even come close to making a dent in this, you're like, what the fuck? You know, like, what's mm. going to do it? I, I used to drive by Sandy Hook all the time, stop there. There's a coffee shop I used to like. Mm-hmm. In that little town, that's where it happened. It's like kind of in my neighborhood. And it's, I don't know what to say about this issue. I've, I don't, this is one of the, this is probably the one biggest issue that I just am completely frustrated and just don't know what to do with. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, to bring this, I, as you guys are talking, and it's just such a tragic thing. And I bring this back to the capitalism issue, right? And because you can't talk about this without talking about the capitalism issue. And I'm reminded of Chief Justice Warren Berger. And there's a famous quote of his, the gist of it is that the gun lobby pulled off the biggest scam in American history by, by, and I can't remember the decision, but the decision that gave each American a personal right to a firearm. That was one of the biggest pieces of fraud perpetrated, Berger says, on the American public. And that is why we're here, right? That is why we're here. Because now the the, the defense always is, well, I have a constitutional right, which trumps every other right. No matter your right to live, is trumped by my constitutional right. And we know that if, because that's the way the constitution works. The constitution is the law of the land. That means if you have a constitutional right, it trumps everyone else's right, like under statute, under everything else. And so that was one of the most brilliant and diabolical moves by the gun yeah. lobby. And, and that is why we're here. It is, it's awful. It's awful. And once that right is established, yeah. It's really hard to undo that, right? We look at the abortion issue, right? The, the undoing Roe v. Wade has been nearly impossible. They've yeah. been trying, they've been trying, they've been trying, they've been trying. It is nearly impossible. It takes consensus of the entire country, right? right. And, and, and that is almost impossible to get, especially now, especially now. Yeah. People are always talking about, oh, there's going to be a second civil war. It's going to get violent. We're already in it. This is the second civil war, and we have to start thinking about these domestic arms traders because that's what these companies are and the Republican Party, okay, and the, their political allies. These are arms traders sitting in our government, okay, and mm-hmm. they, are, they are like a foreign enemy selling weapons of war to our own citizens. And by granting citizens this right, that means that every single person has the power of life and death at any moment. And that's too much power for a human being. And it, 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 it's corrosive to our country. It's corrosive to having any sort of cohesive society. You know, these, these weapons are being cranked out, sold to our neighbors day after day, year after year. And every mass shooting is a battle lost in this war. And we're not winning any battles because we can't. It's just one-sided. We just keep losing these battles. We mm-hmm. get this list of the dead 
And before we can even mourn them, there's more the next day. And if we kept our flags at half staff for every mass shooting, we would never be able to raise our flags again for the foreseeable future because there's Never. no one in sight, you know, it's and madness. So every day there are more weapons on the street. And so every day the potential they will be used increases. And obviously we need to root out people in our military and politics and private citizens who are bent on carrying out domestic terrorism or more correctly, we should call it white terrorism, but the terrorism is already happening. I mean, mass shootings are domestic terrorism. Yeah. And I, I think mm -hmm. people keep waiting for some shoe to drop, like some big, you know, what, what does it have to be? 200 people, a thousand people at once? I mean, what at what point do you call it a war? And don't think there's also not serious collateral damage. It's like your friend, Joe. We're talking, though, about also about an entire generation mm -hmm. of American kids are growing up in fear that their school is going to be next. And if you remember all our generation, Okay, the Cold War duck and cover drills mm. for kids growing up. No one died in those drills, right? right. And, and, and yet they still traumatized a generation. Today's kids are watching their friends die and they're being forced to participate in these active shooter drills. And I want to read, I think this is very powerful. Okay, I want to read an anonymous post by a high school kid that everyone needs to hear. He or she says, everyone cries during drills. Even the toughest ranch kids. Every drill comes with a full day of teachers crying and telling us that they love us all so much and will die for us. And every kid in every class looking around wondering who I would die for. Would you die for me? You walk to the bathroom and wonder every second if it happens right now. Where will I go? You test supply closet doors to see which ones are unlocked. You memorize which furniture in the teacher's lounge your English teacher says is light enough to barricade a door with. The fire alarm goes off and nobody moves. Instead, you wait for gunshots. Is it a trap? You stand with a group of freshmen and realize that you're the oldest and you know that you will have to die for them. You forget your ID tag and worry that now the police won't be able to tell your parents if you're safe or not safe. Your stats teacher has a baseball bat by the door. Your math teacher keeps a stapler under each desk to throw. Your drama teacher asks who will be willing to stand by the non-locking door with the Shakespearean swords. <laughs> Your yearbook teacher tells you, don't worry about breaking a camera because you heard about the kids who died holding them. You don't use the bathroom during classes because you don't want to be the only target to shoot at. You keep your phone on silent 24-7 because you worry the one time you forget will be when you get your whole U.S. history class killed. You have a snap saved with your class schedule and school and full name to send in an instant to your internet friends so they know if you are on that wing. You have a note saved of all the things you want your mom to know and the things that you're sorry for. At the age of 12, I was told I needed to know who I would die for and that it was okay if it was nobody. That was my decision to make. School shootings control us more than adults and non-Americans could possibly imagine. And nobody moves to change anything unless we're actively screaming for it. Have you considered that we're too scared? This is just a gut-wrenching quote. Yeah. Wow, that powerful. is awful. That is awful. That is just, that is, that's awful. I want to publish that on the blog. You should. I have. There's more to it than that. I have the full yeah. version. Yeah, yeah. I want to publish that on the blog because that's fucking powerful. Man. I, I, I have not thought of it from that perspective before, just because it's so far from me. Like, first of all, I live in a super liberal state that makes it really hard for people to get guns, which is a privilege that I frequently forget. I don't ever see guns. They're not a part of my life. That's the difference. And the other thing too is that, like, I've so so long out of school that. Yeah, I just, I just had never thought of it from that perspective. And and that is something that I always try to ask white people or 
or to think of it, what it might be like to, that's what I demand of society, right? Think of it, what it might be like to be a person of color and be afraid of police officers in that way. Right. Yeah. Um, and now, and boy, that is just bing, like light bulb in my head, like, holy fucking shit. That I can't imagine being a high school student in that environment. I just can't imagine. I just can't imagine. Yeah. It's completely you know? gut wrenching. And, and we know who's directly responsible for this. It's yep. spineless, craven Republicans who are in the pocket of the arms industry. They have taken over. This is an invading force that has taken over our government, okay, to subject us to this. And it's also our enemies, Russia, who are in bed with the NRA. Ties yeah. between Russia and the NRA and other arms merchant lobbying groups have been well documented. And what a wet dream for Vladimir Putin and the rest of America's enemies. The dude just has to be laughing his motherfucking ass off. Stupid Americans, they are opposition. They make weapons, <laughs> sell weapons, own citizen pay for weapon with government stimulus. Ha ha ha. I mean, it's just, it's insane. It was only 2004 that the federal assault weapons ban expired. And with it, our only hope of heading off this well-funded and coordinated internal attack on our nation. And we can't even fight back. We can't win a single battle because this enemy has closed off our legal avenues. Without the ability to overcome a Senate filibuster, we can't pass federal gun control legislation. And even if we could, it's highly likely that any attempt to reduce the number of guns in circulation through buybacks or confiscation would be overturned by the Supreme Court on Second Amendment grounds. So it's really to the point now where until and unless we have a complete turnover and effectively decimate the Republican Party nationwide, we simply won't be able to ever get back to the kind of America we had before the mass shooting era. And by the way, religion's in on it, too. This is all supported by the same conservative evangelicals who brought us Trump. And that brings us full circle to the Bible quote I used at the beginning of the show, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And that seems to be the direction America's heading. I wish I had some solutions to offer or a happy ending to the story, but I don't today. And it seems like we've just stepped into the Hobbesian trap of creating a worst case scenario of a society irrevocably committed to solving its problems with gunfire and no way out of it in the short term. Am I overstating the point, do you guys think, or overselling that here? Every time that there is some noise about gun control, what happens? The gun sales go through the roof, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's like it's almost like a positive feedback effect. The more you try to make it better, the worse it gets. And really, there's a powerlessness around this issue more than any other that I know of right now. It's just like we can't seem to touch it. We can't seem to get there. And everyone other than the devotees of the NRA, realize that it's a problem, a serious problem, yet we can't touch it. We can't touch it legislatively. That is a really an indication that our system has really become dysfunctional more than anything else, that we cannot touch this issue. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I guess my Final thoughts on on the show and on this particular issue are that I need to, you know, it's funny because we started early in the show, we talked about police violence against black people and structural racism. We talk about that all the time on this show, but it's important for me as a black person to also check my privilege in, in various other ways. I mean, I don't live with a realistic threat of gun violence day in, day out. I really don't. It's not a big part of my life and I don't think about it and I don't allow it 
as horrible as I, I, as it is, and I know it is, and how awful it is, I haven't let it get personal for me in the same way that I allowed, for example, LGBTQ rights to get personal for me, right? And women's rights to be personal for me. I want that kind of justice like with a deep passion. And I don't, and I don't know that I feel that same way about guns or I haven't significantly Mm -hmm. enough. And on, in a similar vein, I have to check my privilege as an American, right? Because on the world stage, I am the white person, right? Like we are the white people of the world, right? We are the people who control, we have disproportionate power, disproportionate wealth. We extract resources from poor countries. And so to, to loop this all together as a person of color, struggling against racism and systemic racism and police violence in the United States. I think that I can take that compassion or that empathy and apply it as readily. I need to continue to or do better at using that same level of passion to these other issues as well. Yeah, well, that's well said. And I think it just comes down to really life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if we have this internal arms industry attacking our nation, we can't do that. And so in some form, we're going to have to hit bottom as a nation and begin some kind of turnaround. I I, I like to say, as if you study history, all fevers eventually break, Mm, but not necessarily in the direction that we want, right? (laughs) So I have to hope that one day our kids will look back on the years when we just straight up turned our nation over to the arms merchants as something like a temporary national insanity. I, I hope it's temporary. Yeah. Well, it could be. I mean, change is funny, isn't it? I mean, it happens in very bizarre ways. You have nothing, resistance, you know, stagnation, and all of a sudden, boom, right? You can have massive change happening very quickly. You saw that with, like, let's say the gay marriage issue, right? Yeah. And so forth. And maybe the same thing will happen here. But what I'm worried about, combine all the things we talked about together, the militarization of the police, in response to the militarization of our entire civil society, mm-hmm. right? You said, as you said, Sean, you can't, in some ways you can't blame cops for being trigger happy when no. every, potentially everybody has a gun. You know, they, they, that is a, a psychic fear and oh. they're the ones that have to confront the public. So it's not an excuse. It does make you think, right? Yeah, it does. And, and it, it, it definitely leaves us stuck in this trap and just a final note of maybe hope, and that is that uh, on our show last week with Jonathan Zucker, he talked about the generational turnaround that we are likely to see if we can survive these next couple of election cycles with our democracy intact. We've got a huge wave of young people who are just sick of this shit, frankly. And so that's right. That's our hope. And all right, if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out the radicalsecular.com and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And if you're into reading, check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Sean Prophet. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. You've been listening to the Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.